Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. After a cutting remark from his rescued damsel in distress, the rugged High Plains drifter character Han Solo says to himself, no reward is worth this. Sometimes it feels like that, right? It's just not worth it. At the start, there's promise. At the start, there's an opportunity that should not be passed up. There's nothing but happy meals and sunshine on the horizon. This is going to be worth it. No matter how much pain or how much risk is involved, I'm all in. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. I imagine that's the way most runners feel when they, get, they come up to the starting line. I haven't run too many races in my day, but you, you must approach that line with a sense of optimism. I mentioned a few weeks ago that there's this, this TV show that my family's been watching where there are these 10 people that are dropped off in different locations out in the wilderness, and they're expected to survive. And it always amazes me how many of them, as they're being interviewed, as they're dropped off, they're saying things like, I'm ready. I am prepared. I have all this wilderness survival training in my background. I'm going the distance. Nothing is going to stand in my way. But you know, as the days drag on and uh, the nights get cold, and the opportunities to eat are fewer and further between. And it seems to be that when their hands start to freeze and their bodies are breaking down and the, the, the feeling of isolation that they're experiencing, being completely cut off from any knowledge of their loved ones, that leads so many of them to this point where they will admit on camera, they'll say, you know, when I started out, I, I had some, some big goals. I had some big expectations. That $500,000, I was going to do great things with that. But you know, the more I think about it, it's just not worth it. Sometimes we find ourselves in those all or nothing moments where we're tempted to, to, to just Take, take the red button and push it and, and tap out and say, I'm done here. I have gone as far as I'm willing to go. But you know, there are other times in life where the decision isn't, isn't it's not an on-off switch here. It's more like a, a, a dial. It's like that knob on your stovetop for the burner. And maybe we thought at the beginning, we're going to crank this thing up to high heat, maximum fuel, maximum burn. I want to have maximum impact, and I'm just going to, I'm just, this is the way I'm going to burn out. But as we begin to count the cost, we start backing it off just a little. Just a little. We were high, now we're medium high. Uh, then down to medium and medium low. Until finally we're as little as possible, risking the possibility of that flame going out completely. What I'd like to present before us this morning is that the determination to make it to the end, 
It has everything to do with the prize to be gained or won. There are a lot of things in life that truly aren't worth it, right? Uh, Letting your body deteriorate and dance on that thin line between life and death for some prize money, that may not be worth it. But on the other hand, if the prize that we're after is like what the Apostle Paul was after, then there's really no question. There's no amount of suffering or danger or effort that is too great to justify calling it quits or dialing back on our pursuit of the finish line. Yes, you and I, if we're caught up in that same race, that same fight that Paul was in, it is of the utmost importance that we keep our eyes keenly focused on the prize. In Acts chapter 21, we pick up just after Paul said goodbye to those elders who he had asked to travel from Ephesus down to Miletus, and he was going to share some some parting words with them. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to deliver some much-needed aid to the Christians there. The church in Jerusalem, that was, was a tough place to have a church. This is where the religious leaders rose up against Jesus. It's where they put him to death. This is where they continued their fight. Anyone who would proclaim the name of Jesus, we're going to try to push that down. We're going to try to, uh, to stamp that out. It's where Peter uh, and, and his compatriots were dragged into court, questioned, thrown in prison. It's where a believer named Stephen was hauled on out of the city and stoned to death for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Incidentally, this is where a devout religious man named Saul was standing there off to the side in full approval of what was going on. And from that point on, he made it his mission to hunt down and destroy Jesus' followers. Was the church in Jerusalem a difficult place to to be a Christian? You, You better believe it. That's where Paul's headed. Paul, who once stood side by side, walking in lockstep with the religious leaders there, now he's one of their worst enemies. He's a traitor, really, and an opponent that needed to be eliminated. Is Paul clueless? He doesn't know what he's getting into? No, no, no. He's no fool. He knew exactly what kind of danger he was sailing into. He didn't know ultimately what's going to happen, all the details of what's going to happen, but he told the elders from Ephesus that the Holy Spirit was was compelling. It was constraining him to go to Jerusalem and then testifying to him in every city that he went to, testifying to him, this isn't going to be easy. Imprisonment and afflictions await. One thing that he was Definitely certain of, he's never going to see these Ephesian faces again, at least not in this life. When he left them, there was weeping, there was hugging, there was was kissing. These relationships, they went back a few years now, at least three years there working with them in Ephesus. What's more, there was no doubt 
this in, incredible sense of connectedness that, that they had, that they felt toward Paul. They felt gratitude to, towards him, appreciation. This was the man who helped point them to the one who would lead them out of their darkness that they had lived in for so, so long and into the marvelous light of now their Savior. And, and Paul, towards them, he had an affection for them too. He looked at them as if they were, they were children, his kids, at least in the faith. You know, family ties, can they, they can be powerful forces, can they not? They can lead us to look at a lot of things, a lot of people, a lot of opportunities, a lot of possessions, a lot of jobs. They can lead us to look at those things and say, you know, I thought I wanted this money or, or this prestige or this whatever goal, but I've realized family is just so important. I, I can't give up my family for this. My relationship with my, my father or my, my mother or my brother or my sister, my son or my daughter, this is precious to me. And people make all sorts of compromises, don't they, for the sake of family. And I think rightly so. This is one of the most precious things, gifts, that God has given us in life. But are there some things that are even more important than flesh and blood? Are there some prizes that are even more precious than, than being close to or, or keeping the peace or, or, or staying on everyone's good side or, or keeping everyone together? Is there something that's more important? Verse 1 of our passage this morning says, When he parted from them and set sail. Last week, Tim Jacobs, he was here with us, and, and that was great. I don't know how that guy preaches without notes. He, he had notes, but he's over here the whole time, and he's just talking. I can't do that. I'm sorry. I'm just not that guy. But he pointed out that this word parted, in the Greek, it means torn away. Paul leaving the Ephesians here, in a sense, he, there's a part of him that is just being shredded. They're being shredded, he's being shredded, and as he saw that shore disappear off the stern of his boat, that was difficult. But do you remember, remember what Paul said to them back in chapter 20, verse 24? He said, there's one thing that is more precious to me than all the other things. There's nothing that's more valuable than, than this one thing. He said, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, to the gospel of the grace of God. That is quite a statement, is it not? Nothing, Paul? Really? You mean to tell me that spending time with us is, is, is not as important as, as you just going to Jerusalem, finishing this course? You're telling us that your own life is not even as precious to you as, as finishing the mission is. Is that what you're saying? You're, you're just saying that, Right? It's easy to say things like that. We say things like that sometimes. Sometimes we sing things like that. We sing lines like, you're all I want. 
Or I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. Jesus, you're all this heart is living for. We sing, my heart will sing no other name. Jesus, Jesus. Do we really mean that? Are we speaking the truth? Or is it just wishful thinking? Do we really believe that our hearts will never Never have a moment of weakness where we turn and we start worshiping someone or something else other than Jesus. We must think pretty highly of ourselves, right? We make all kinds of claims. High, high claims like these. We say, uh, we're, we're going to be faithful to this, this body of believers here. You members, you've said that. We say, we're going to forgive them. We're going to stand by them. We're going to be all about their discipleship and allow them to speak into our lives and disciple us. But you know, depending on how badly they hurt us, and depending on the disagreements that we might have, disagreements over budget, disagreements over uh, carpet color, disagreements over the style of the, of the music or, or the, 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 the tone of it, uh, well, we may need to part ways over those things. Maybe someday. Yeah, we talk a big game when we get up on stage and we recite those vows in black and white, right? But if we come later down the road to realize that this relationship is not the pleasure cruise that I had hoped it to be, and it doesn't seem to be the ultimate path that leads me to having all of my dreams come true, well, then we start to consider looking elsewhere. We say, oh yeah, I'll love my neighbor. And then we go, oh my gosh, my neighbor really irritates me. And we say that God's word is the highest authority, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That is until what it says doesn't quite jive with uh, some of the things that we want to do in life. Or, Or maybe it doesn't jive with the desire my my child has about their sexual preferences or their gender or their desire to experiment and do all sorts of things that the Bible forbids outside of marriage. We say, yes, I'll be God's witnesses. I'll be his witness. We'll, We'll represent him wherever we go. I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. That is until we realize that doing so is going to make other people and maybe us very, very uncomfortable. And some friendships, jobs, security might be put in jeopardy. What are we, what are we doing? We're claiming to have eyes set on a prize, that we're in it to win it. But somewhere on our way to the finish line, we've concluded that We've got to push the button. We've got to tap out or at least turn the dial down because we've realized there's a cost to this. Is this worth it? We're making an evaluation. So here, so we hear Paul saying he doesn't consider anything valuable as valuable compared to the mission God has given him. And we're tempted to say, yeah, right. Uh, That's really nice, Paul. But You know, we'll see what happens when the rubber meets the road and the going gets tough. You say that you're going to go and and, and charge into harm's way, but, you know, no one will fault you if as things get really rough, you decide to change course. 
Well, my friends, that's what these 16 verses that we have before us are all about today. They give us evidence of the fact Paul meant what he said and did what he said. So here we go. (laughs) Paul and his crew, they set sail. Verse 1 says, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. So there they are, sailing hightailing it as fast as they possibly can to their destination. And they stop in this place called Kos. Then in Rhodes, and as they enter into Rhodes, they're going to enter into that harbor, they're going to see that 108 or so foot statue, the Colossus of Rhodes, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they're going to go from there. They're off to Patera before making a big leap, you see, the big pinkish red line all the way over to the mainland. And each of these were, were quick, pretty much one-night stops. There's actually a reason for that uh, as they're up in the Aegean area, and that's because of the wind. The wind blew favorably during the day. Started early in the morning, and it blew exactly where they wanted to go. But as the evening came, it dies down, goes still, and starts turning around the other direction. So they would find their way into a port. So it's not that he's just like dilly-dallying around here. He's going as fast as he possibly can. Verse 2 says this, And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for, for the, there the ship was to unload it's cargo. Phoenicia just refers to that coastal land there in, in Syria. Of course, Cyprus is the, the large island you see right there in the Mediterranean. Tyre is the major port city right there up above uh, uh, Ptolemais and Caesarea. And from there, when people would get to Caesarea, they would usually go on land all the way into Jerusalem. Notice verse 4, it says this. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed for seven days. There's a reason Paul had to seek out the disciples there entire. And that's because he didn't know these Christians. The church in that town, it wasn't founded by him, but you might say it was founded because of him. Acts 11.19 tells us that after Stephen was stoned to death, Christians were were exiting Jerusalem. And they went as far as the coast, out into Phoenicia there, places like Tyre. And that means that the Christians there were there because of the persecution that Paul was stirring up in Jerusalem. They were on the run because of people like him. But amazingly enough, when Paul looks them up, They don't shutter their windows and close the door and pray for God's deliverance. No, they form an attachment to him. And so much do they care for him that they're actually, when he's ready to leave, they're begging him. They're begging him not to continue on to Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Why? We just, we just love you, Paul. We just love you so much. We want you to hang out with us forever. I don't think that's it. Through the Spirit, it says. Paul has, to, has, has told us every city he's gone, the Spirit was testifying that 
If he goes to Jerusalem, where he goes to Jerusalem, the Spirit leading him to Jerusalem, that's going to mean imprisonment for him. It's going to mean hardship for him. And my understanding of this right here, that the Spirit is influencing these Christians here in Tyre, he's telling them the Spirit's revealing this very same thing to them. And because they now care for Paul and appreciate him, they're saying, no, 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 we don't want this to happen to you. This is not what you need, Paul. Out of their love for him, don't continue on. But what does Paul do? Verse 5. When our days were ended, probably that means they finished loading the big ship that they were on, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. Once again, Paul, set, Paul shows us that what he was saying in verse 24 of chapter 20 was more than just talk. He's very purposeful, isn't he, in his journey to Jerusalem. Nothing is going to stand in his way. Nothing is going to deter him. Despite the, the pleas of well-meaning believers, he's going. I have to go. Verse 7. And when he had finished the voyage from Tyre... We arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed, came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, you might remember this man named Philip. If you've been with us in our study of Acts, we talked about him all the way back in chapter 6, and then from there, there were several different instances where Philip's name came up. Philip was one of those men, the seven men that the church selected to take care of the distribution of food to the widows who were being neglected. So that the apostles might continue on in their ministry of the word and, and prayer. Philip was one of those guys. And from there, Philip travels downward to Samaria, which is actually north of Jerusalem, but it's downhill. And he led a ton of people to Jesus. And from there, God leads him to a lonely road where he meets this Ethiopian who's traveling and just happens to be reading some of Isaac. Coincidence? No. <laughs> And God uses Philip to lead that Ethiopian to the Lord. And the gospel spreads again. This is a guy who, when it comes to sharing the gospel, Philip was a force to be reckoned with. Look at verse 9. It says, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We don't know the details of what these, these girls were actually doing, what that prophecy actually looks like. But clearly, they are devoted to the Lord. So Philip's ministry, it wasn't just about out there, those people. He brought it home, which is something that is so crucial for Christians and Christian leaders to remember. Our first ministry is right here in our homes. We need our families to know Christ, and they need to see Christ in us. Clearly, this, this crowd, this family, it, ministry was a family affair. Cherishing the gospel, that's a family thing. And Jesus, God was using these young women to do ministry, to build up the church there. Verse 10 says, While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And we've heard of prophets before here in our study of Acts. In fact, we've heard of Agabus before, all the way back in Acts chapter 11. 
He was used by God to reveal some very practical thing to the church, that, that a famine is coming. But here in Acts 21, we have the most detailed account of a prophet in action in the time of the early church. And he actually does it just like prophets did in the Old Testament. Look at this, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, I'm assuming that Paul's belt was sitting there and he didn't just walk up and say, that would be really weird. He took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You know, it's one thing to to hear a warning, right? There are risks, there are dangers ahead, but this is a vivid picture. Paul had heard the warnings. This is vivid. This is, I mean, it's, it's rubber meets the road kind of time. It's, it's like riding on the wall kind of time. It's where the risk of continuing on your intended course, it becomes kind of crystallized in your mind because you're seeing it. It's like the written uh, warning from, from HR that if you don't watch what you say or get on board with the company's new social agenda, well, there's going to be some consequences. You better watch it here. This is the teacher telling you, if you express your beliefs on this campus, even if it's on one of your t-shirts, well, disciplinary action is on the way. This is the crystal clear realization that if you hold on to what God has revealed in his word, and don't bend to the cultural tide, the movement there, then you've got some serious pain and discomfort, potential loss in your future. It's the realization that, you know, you want to be holy as he who called you is holy. But you know what? That's going to to take some sacrifice. It's going to mean you may need to give up some things. It may mean that you're not watching some of the same programs that everyone around you is watching. Because you know this is just, by doing this, I'm participating in vicarious sin here. This is not good. It may mean not engaging on that social media platform. Because you know where that road takes you. Or maybe even hanging on to or leaving unprotected, uh, unmonitored, unprotected pornography generator in your pocket. Some tough luxuries to part with these days. We have some things we hold very, very precious. Entertainment's one of them. Connectedness is one of them. It's it's the, the, the realization that your children, they might despise you. If you say, no, I'm not going to let you have a smartphone until you're of age to be able to handle it. I'm not going to allow you to go out with those friends, watch that program, have that app, surf the internet in the privacy of your, your bedroom. This is the church. If you don't get on board with reshaping and softening the good news of Jesus, then you're going to lose the next generation. You better be prepared to tighten your belts and let some dust collect on those chairs out there. Uh, Maybe even shutter your doors and windows because, well, there's a tide here. You've got to be on the right side. This is the son or daughter saying to you, unless you stop parenting and start affirming 
you better come to grips with the reality that you no longer have a son or daughter. Do you feel it? Do, do, do you see the risk? Do you understand the danger? Do you see how easy it could be to tap out and, or just dial back the heat, dial back your passionate pursuit of Christ and his call on your life? It is real, isn't it? It's so real, and it's happening today. And no doubt you know other believers who are doing this right here and now. But you know, if you would look at me and you would ask me who I identify with in this passage here, it's not Paul. It's the don't go people. That's who I identify with. I identify with the don't go people. The ones we read about in verse 4, the ones we're reading about right here in verse 12. When we heard this, that's Luke, the writer of this, this book and every, all the other Christians with him, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. i got to tell you something, Paul. As, as, as a friend, as a partner in ministry, I, I don't know if this is worth it. Don't go. We don't want to lose you. We know you believe the Spirit of God is, is leading you there to go be with the believers in Jerusalem, but the risk of doing it right here and right now, that is just too high. And this is what we do in our minds all the time, right? All the time. Our minds are evaluating whether or not the decisions that we make or the options that we have in front of us are worthwhile. And this is what happens when we're unclear about what is truly valuable. I stand in the cereal aisle, and I gotta tell you, there are some choices to make. I see the colorful boxes promising those rich, fruity flavors. They're gonna rot my teeth and make me fat. On the other hand, there's this white, plain box in front of me where it's filled with a bunch of gravel and it promotes heart health. Which choice do I make? But it's not just between those two. It's between like 50 other boxes. There's too many choices there. Which one is it going to be? Well, not all cereals are equal. I know that. Not all trophies have the same significance, do they? And not all prizes hold the same value. Let me tell you something. There are prizes that just aren't worth it. But the prize that Paul was after, the prize that I hope that you and I are after, it's not like those other prizes. Look at what Paul says to these fellow believers. My one of my favorite phrases of all time, what are you doing? <laughs> he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Come again? Excuse me? What was that, Paul? What did you say? I thought I heard insanity just come out of your mouth. Paul says, I'm ready to die. This is the exact opposite of what all these contestants on this survival show are saying when they get to the point where they're, they're, they're risking a toe falling off or, or some other serious injury to their body, uh, organ failure or whatever. They, they come to the conclusion, it's not worth it. $500,000, not worth it. I don't need this. And they are right. They're so right. But Paul says, this is worth it. 
I know something that's worth it. Even worth imprisonment. Even worth dying for. And that's Jesus. And someone who is new to the whole Christian thing might say, are you nuts? Nothing is worth that. When you die, you're dead. And the Christian says, no. It's not according to what the Bible says. Not according to the irrefutable historical evidence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not what that says. Paul said this. He wrote this in Philippians 1.20. He said, we're going to get into the mind of Paul a little bit here. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What are you talking about, Paul? How can it be gain to die? Paul writes on in Philippians 3. One thing I do, forgetting all what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Prize? What prize are you talking about? What is it that you're going to gain when you die? And Paul told us a few verses earlier in Philippians. He's, he was talking about all the things that, that matter and all the things that don't matter. He's telling us, you know, I, I once thought there were all kinds of things that matter. Things like being seen as devout or being seen as an expert or having a spotless reputation or being the most passionate or the best of the best or the envy of all others. Yeah, I thought all those things were very, very important. And he says, all of that stuff pales in comparison to the thing he's discovered that has truly unmatched value, and that's Jesus. Paul says in 3.10, I, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the prize here that he's talking about. It's knowing Jesus and having your life found in him. Why? Because knowing Jesus is the only way to cross that finish line and be brought from death to glorious light and life. Trusting in him, following in his footsteps, even if that means suffering. He, Paul says, any means possible. I, I want that. I need to reach the goal. Whatever it is, whatever it looks like. Does it mean I'm, I'm bound and in prison? Does it mean that I suffer some horrible death? Does it mean that I go hungry? Does it mean that my life isn't you know, this, this glorious, wonderful Cinderella story? It doesn't matter. By any means possible, I want that. I need that. This is what I'm aiming for. And do you know what I get when I get there? I get personal resurrection to eternal life. Do you realize what's going on here? Here in Acts 21, 1 to 16, Paul is marching forward into harm's way. He doesn't know what horrors await him. What manner of brutality he might be facing doesn't matter because he knows 
that trusting Jesus, answering his call, living by faith and obedience to him, even though it may not make sense to anybody else, even though it might earn him glaring eyes and sharp tongues, even hatred for others, mockery from others, may cost him some relationships. I can't be with the people that I love right now. It might cost him personal comfort. It might cost him having his best life now. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I'm going to the prize That's the path that leads him to the celestial city that John Bunyan talked about. It's how he attains the ultimate reward. That's why he can say, life? This life is is living for Jesus. There's nothing else worth living for. Not money, not fame, not love, not sex, not entertainment, not good food. You name it. It's Jesus. That's it. And to die? You guys scared of that? This is the finish line. It's the finish line. This is prize time. This is when the party gets started. Paul was the guy who heard what Jesus said, and he took it hook, line, and sinker. Jesus said, whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. He said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you, they persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus, are you insane? For your reward is great in heaven. There's reward there. He says this, Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That sentence is kind of a big deal, isn't it? Have you thought much about that sentence? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, isn't it the heart, that, that location inside of us that we speak of, that, that this is kind of the, the location of where our affections lie? Isn't it the heart that, that, that makes determinations about what is valuable and what is not valuable? Isn't it the heart that worships? Isn't it the heart that looks outward and, and finds things out there to rely upon? Friends, if our hearts are loving Worshiping, seeking after, and depending upon things other than Jesus. Treasures on earth. Isn't that a rather dangerous place to be? What you and I prize says a whole lot about where we're ultimately going to end up. Doesn't it? This is no joke. Back to what was going on in Paul's mind. Philippians 3.17. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross 
of Christ. And to that, most Christians would go, yeah, yeah, I know who those people are, the enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, they're those sinners out there who don't care anything about Jesus. Or worse, they're the ones who are full on against Jesus. They hate Jesus. They want to eradicate Jesus. In fact, maybe they're part of that Satanist church over there, and they are against his people. They just want to attack them. They want to shut them down. They want to persecute them. Those are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Maybe. But could it be he's talking about a broader group of people here? He goes on to describe them. He says, their end is their destruction. They're not going down a good path. He says, their God is their belly. So their desires are the things that move them. That's what they worship, fulfilling desires. Their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Boy, that sounds a lot like treasures on earth to me. It looks like those who are running after prizes other than the one that truly matters. And then look at verse 20 and what he describes in contrast, the people in contrast to the enemies of the cross. Our citizenship is where? Here in the United States. It's in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you think that's enough power? Oh, it is enough power. Do you see it? Do you see where Paul's sights are set? Do you see what prize he's focused on? It's all about Jesus. Not about making something of this life. It's about living his life all out for Jesus, all the while looking forward to the finish line where there's a reward for him. It's a transformed, glorious new life with him in eternity. Friends, this is the hope of the Christian faith. This is what we're all about. This is where our sights need to be set, not on preserving the here and now, not on getting the most out of the short time that we have left here, but on being completely spent, completely poured out for Jesus and pointing Jesus, uh, others to Jesus until the day we cross that finish line and have the reward, which is Jesus. That's where Paul is at here in Acts 21, and that's what he wants these Christians, including the author of this book, to see. Would they see it? Look at verse 14. It says, and since he would not be persuaded, couldn't do it, couldn't change his mind. We tried. <laughs> Lord knows we tried. Could not be persuaded. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went on with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. They got it. It, it. it sounds like it took a while. They got it. And the evidence was that not only did they stop trying to persuade him, but they actually go with him into harm's way themselves. You know what it's like to be associated with someone who is uh, risky business? Whew. Not sure if I want to stand too close to that guy. They went right with him. 
Uh, our, our question for today is our, 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 I, <laughs> our, our, our eyes on the prize. <sighs> that was eloquent. Are our eyes on the prize? Do we understand this new life that we have in Jesus? The citizenship that we now have in heaven? The glorious transformed bodies that we will enjoy for an eternity with him. Do we realize that is what the here and now is leading to? This is not the end right here. And thank God it is not the end. We all have a lot of unfulfilled dreams. This isn't what we necessarily signed up for. There's something better. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.17. The light momentary affliction, that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look forward, not to the things that are seen, to the things that are unseen. That's where we're looking. For the things that are seen are transient. They're coming and going. But the things that are unseen, they are They are eternal. For we know that if the tent, he's speaking of our bodies, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Some of you are groaning. Some of you experience pain right now. Longing to put on our heavenly dwell. Are you longing? He goes on in 5.6. So we're always of good courage. We've seen courage in Paul. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's where we want to be. I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be at the beach. Doesn't compare to this. I'd rather be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Let's set our eyes on the prize. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, let's press on with unshakable resolve forward toward his glory and in the name of our risen king. Let's run with perseverance the race set before us until we cross that finish line and enter into our reward. Amen? Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Lord, you have rescued us from darkness and you have set before us an eternity with you. This is where we're going. This life that we're living now is not it. This is the journey. This is the race. And the finish line draws closer with each breath we take. Lord, may we move forward with our eyes fixed on the prize fixed on you, always looking toward that glorious moment when we see you face to face, where we will be transformed, where we will be in paradise, Lord. Lead us to be faithful through the trials that we face even now, 
Faithful in the midst of opposition. Faithful in the midst of sacrifices that we may make for the sake of of reflecting you and holiness in our lives. Faithfulness to standing for what is right, what is true. May we press on. Praising you, thanking you, joyfully worshiping you on the way. And we will give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.